Welcome to another episode of the Dr. J Show, where we discuss everything business, nonprofit, and social, tackling a different topic each and every month. And this morning, I am joined by somebody that I really look up to, really respect, uh, that has gone on his own journey and nonprofits, society, and life, and, and I've enjoyed corresponding with over the not too many years that we've known each other, but uh, Garrett Livinggood uh, joins us this morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Dr. J. Yeah, awesome. And, you know, uh, thinking about it, you know, it's only been maybe five or six years that we've really kind of known each other and, and, and really kind of a chance uh, you know, chance encounter and, uh, uh, interesting, you know, to, uh, I think out of the group of everybody that, that met each other, you and I are kind of the ones that, uh, kind of continued on and have, have uh, done some different things. And, and I really, I think I kind of credit you with actually the idea for the show in the first place in some way. Oh, wow. Thanks. So, yeah, so this is good. So, uh, You've been down a lot of paths, right? You you've yeah. done several different things, uh, as as have I. Um, but but I want to focus in kind of let's start off, you know, kind of your background and and uh, where you've been and kind of what you're up to now. All right. Well, um, so to recap a life's journey and and a couple of characters, I feel like this is um, my Facebook profile. Where I'm by 200 characters to, to list it all. There you go. Uh, here it is. Um, so we met in Utah, Salt Lake City, um, and that was in 2015. We yep. were on a nonprofit trip, and I was in the Nonprofit Leadership Alliance Certificate Program at Kennesaw State University. I was getting my bachelor's degree in political science. I had considered going into law. Um, I kind of dissuaded myself from that. I didn't really want to become a professional liar. No offense to liars. They do a lot of good work out there. I'm giving them a hard time. But, um, you know, I just, I, I didn't know if that I didn't see myself being happy there. I thought that was more of a, a selfish economic decision. Um, you know, as I've gotten older and more mature, I... I can see myself doing more economically uh, sound decisions rather than um, maybe like things that I, I enjoy, uh, happy pursuits. So, you know, I think your, your, your moral and ethics, your value, what you value changes through time um, as it should. You should adapt and evolve and um, learn to appreciate new things. So, you know, in that time, I've learned to appreciate a lot of different things. Um, you know, prior to us meeting, I, I had a psychosis back in 2012. Um, 
and was hospitalized. And, you know, it definitely was traumatic for, for me. Um, you know, I was a top performing athlete growing up, you know, just always, you know, in the middle upper class of my grade level intellectually. So, you know, never really struggled. Um, we just had a good life. And, you know, at the age of 20, uh, I had that psychosis and it really kind of struck me deep and, and it made me, it really opened me up to a lot. It made me self-aware of a lot of corruption. Um, that's kind of one of the drives that pushed me to go into law was, you know, to work on the side of, of medical. Um, because I, I kind of was faced with so many uh, problems. And it wasn't the hospital or anything. It was really just the policies and how they're set up and the institutions that exist. They're, they're, not, they're not what the people need. Um, so we could actually, that's a really good topic for us to get into, um, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Here, here's the interesting thing, you know, when we met, so I, I got my, uh, my CNP certified nonprofit professional credential as you, as you also hold, I don't, uh, but I got it. it. You, my, uh, you, volunteer, you don't uh, hold it. Okay. I thought you completed it. Uh, but in either case, I got what is now the CMP before okay. it was the CMP, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting conversation in itself to have, because even when we were in Utah, uh, people would say, well, where'd you get your CMP? And I said, well, I don't have one. I have the American Humanities. They're like, what's that? And that's what it was for 70 plus years was American Humanics. Or close. I think the 70th year maybe was the year we were in Utah. And uh, Utah was a real challenge for me because I had, I had, you know, done several speaking engagements and done different things over the years. But the year prior to us going to Utah was the year I finished my PhD. And so one of my goals coming out of the PhD was to go out and do kind of what we did in Utah. And it was a, it was a real eye opener and I, and I enjoyed it. And I, and I felt like I did a good job. I didn't mess you guys up too bad. I don't think <laughs> uh, or the groups Not I was working with, uh, but, but all a learning experience, you know, and after that happened, it was probably it was probably a year, maybe a year and a half after Salt Lake City. I spoke at a conference uh, in Iowa. I think we were in Cedar Rapids, and I wanted to write a book. I wanted to convert my dissertation into a book, which is really hard to do. That's a whole nother story. And another author told me just to do it. And what I realized at that point was, you know, that the, the thesis, the dissertation was education, work, and mental health. Well, mental health was, uh, as, as you might remember, talking about quality of life. But I did that because the definition, the traditional mental health is, is one of, of illness, but even that gets so misconstrued that I was like, somebody needs to do something about that mm -hmm. and, and separate those things out. And so 
you know, you and I have talked, I think, a couple of times about about your issues, and, and I've been on a couple of shows talking about mental health. And so, I mean, what are what are we missing? What what is our society doing that is causing that is causing mental health issues? But what is our society doing to not help make it any better? I mean, we're really kind of we're trying to make it better, but we're almost making things worse in some ways. Yeah, there's, there's, it will, and it, it's happening from multiple directions. Um, are you familiar with Dr. Andrew Wheel? I am. So I, I'm a big fan of positive psychology, and, and that's really, I think, would, would be a good summation of what you described in terms of kind of explaining the human experience, not from diagnosing it um, from a psychoanalytical point of view, but breaking the human down as an individual and trying to put all the parts of him together. Um, So that goes into lifestyle management. Um, You know, to, to answer your question in terms of what's wrong, you know, Dr. Andrew Wheel describes the human as a quantum experience. So we're chemical, biochemical, um, you know, so there's that dimension of what's happening on the neurotransmitter level. You know, there's the environmental, um, what we're exposed to, um, what we're consuming, whether it's digitally, uh, physically, um, you know, there's, there's beyond the environment and the biochemical there is the, the, the individual biology, you know, there's the genetic difference between one another um, that, that positions us in a different, you know, that displaces us in every place that we go. Um, so to try to answer, you know, what are we missing? I think, you know, when you look at the, the family situation, we're, we're overworked, um, you know, we're stretched really thin and we don't realize that we're putting in 70 hours a week. Um, but we are, you know, for, for our jobs and we're not able to, to give our attention and that's causing attention deficit at the home because the children aren't getting that natural dopamine fix from you looking at them and you touching them and you talking to them because you're having to work. You're not, you're not there. And so the child then becomes addicted to false pleasures like the TV or uh, sugary sweets, um, you know, the cheap pleasures of the world, the, the things that the indulgences, you know, if, you know, if, if you're spiritual, um, you know, there's, we've, we've, we've kind of hoard ourselves out there for convenience rather than um, long, looking at things from a longevity point of view. So, you know, we, we took, our, our, our idea of risk analysis has changed. So we'd rather protect our kids 100% rather than expose them a little bit and, and, and take the risk of them being stronger. Um, you just made so many good points that I'm not even sure I can properly even respond to 80% of it, but, I, but I'm going to try because we, our culture, the traditional American culture that you and I both belong to is so different from other cultures. We are totally overworked. You know, I, 
I, uh, you know, own Bollinger Solutions and uh, do some real estate, you know, as well on the side. And I, if I don't watch it, you know, I can easily work a 15 hour day and not, and not really feel it. And, you know, but I take a different approach. I mean, I'm at home today. It's 20 below zero outside, 22 below zero outside. And I'm working from home. And, you know, that lets me take some breaks and, and check in with my wife and check in with the kids. And that is really valuable. And I heard yesterday or read an article yesterday that with the pandemic, you know, more people are working from home, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. But the hours that people are working, people aren't even realizing that they're working over the 40 hours. And so it really concerns me about what that's going to do to our, not just our social, social culture, but our workplace culture. It is actually, in my mind, going to cause a drop in productivity. It's going to cause a massive drop in morale. And in terms of like what I talk about in the book, it's going to cause a massive drop in uh, positive mental health. I mean, we, we essentially are going to, we're essentially going to implode on ourselves yeah. with, with the way we are. So, we're, so you're, we're, our prefrontal cortex is, 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 is being massively interfered with. And I, I don't think many people, there is neuroscientists that are studying the topic, but a lot of people don't really understand the depths of what, what we're doing to our bodies and our brains. Um, yeah. and, and you mentioned the prefrontal cortex, which is, which is critical here. It's critical right. here. You, you and I know that. But what people don't understand when we talk about the brain as a whole People don't understand how the brain can rewire itself. And there's actually a book on the, on the topic uh, that, that talks about how, how the brain can change itself over time to adapt to, to whatever. And a lot of the examples deal with uh, some sort of disability or some sort of an impairment. Uh, and, and in some ways, I think my brain has, has done some rewiring that I, that I probably don't recognize. But, but this is the same thing is going to happen because of this pandemic and it's not going to be a positive rewire. No. So so what do we do about it? Well, there's, there's, there, there is rebounds. Um, Sometimes the opposite effect can happen. So I think it's important not to count anything out. Um, Optimism is one of the best remedies to, the evolution of energy um you know there is a transmission somewhere and whether the spark goes out for decades you know there, <laughs> there will be an avatar that will rise you know like there will be a movement that will bring people together and i think i i really think that we're starting to see that movement through sustainability um you know to go into neuroplasticity um you know there there's some basic dietary uh, 
choices that people can do to to repair their gut, to repair their brain. You know, I work in a hospital setting right now, and I, I the, one of the most common things I'm seeing are, are digestive issues, um, typically leaky gut, and and if it's not digestive, it's going to be circulatory, um, which bleeds into neurological. So, you know, learning about what you're allergic to and learning how to stay away from just purely poisonous foods is essential. And it's something that we're not really teaching in our, like, like our chemistry class should show students what the corn oil is doing in your stomach and show what it does to tissue under a microscope. We should be scaring kids into being healthy. I think we should walk kids down the hallways of hospitals to see these people who are 600 pounds and just can't breathe because they have food in their chest. Like, and explain to them, you know, there is gen- like what genetics is and explain to them, you know, this person is drinking three liters of cola a day and, and this is what's happening to their body. And, you know, really enriching ch- the, the experience of a child and stop trying to protect them from truth and, and actually expose them to, to information to empower them. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that we can do as, as people right now is education. So, you know, fish, fish oils, great for the brain circulatory system, uh, curcumin, which is an active ingredient in turmeric. Anti-inflammatory, great to help reduce your blood pressure. And instead of thinning out your blood, what you're doing is you're reducing the inflammation in the capillaries. So now that you're you're not decreasing the amount of nutrients in your blood by thinning it out, you're allowing the blood to work as is. It's now just not having to push so hard to to increase the pressure in those capillaries. So you know, and and the reason why you have to talk to your doctor is because if you're on blood thinners and you do an anti-inflammatory like curcumin, you could have a stroke because now you're, you have too much blood rushing through your system. And so, you know, you get stuck in these cycles of, of, a, of the medicinal system and it's hard to trek backwards because now you have so many more precautions to take. Um, you know, getting rid of, of dairy products or at least pure milk and, and the milk that's on the shelves, um, you know, shopping local. I, I think that, you know, one of... I was actually thinking today I wanted to give you this idea, uh, but I would love to see a collaboration between like Uber Eats and farmers markets this summer. Um, It'd be and- great. It, you know, here you're everything you've said. You're apps. I mean, you're, you're right on target. And I I was real fortunate as a kid to grow up on a farm, and oh. you know, uh, my folks had gotten out of of. Uh, pigs and, and cattle by the time I was around. But, uh, you know, mom still planted one or two gardens a year. Uh, and, and we had some fruit trees and, you know, dad row cropped, uh, corn and soybeans, you know, 80 or so acres. Uh, I believe it was, uh, I'm probably low on that. Uh, and I, I raised, uh, I raised poultry, you know, as a nine, 10, 11 year old kid. And so I had a real good understanding of where food came from, 
But on top of that, uh, mom worked for the cooperative extension, extension system uh, for the, uh, what was then the FNEP program, which was a food and nutrition program. And so she would bring home uh, food models that, that she would use to help demonstrate food groups. And, and uh, of course, this was the 90s. So uh, they had a, a software program that came out that let you track your, uh, what you ate. And I hate to say it, but this program was almost better than just about anything we have nowadays, which is weird for a program from the 90s. Uh, but this thing was great. And then you could print your stuff out. And it, it was, you know, so, so that was real important. But, you know, the science thing, that's an interesting observation because, you know, like we pointed out on uh Another episode of the show, uh, when we talked with, with Jeff Jorgensen and, and we talked about aviation, uh, there are a lot of things that aren't taught in public schools. Yeah. You know, aviation taught, isn't taught in public schools. Nutrition is taught in public schools, but it's not taught in a way that I feel like really makes the connection. It needs to be more of a culinary class. Yeah. I mean, and, and culinary class needs to be more of a chemistry class. And, you know, we should be understanding, you know, are we, are we taking out the medicinal products by cooking the, mm. the garlic or, you know, like, like we should be having these conversations and, and learning these things on, on, on a very deep level. So, so it becomes a memory and we're, we're, we're brushing across so much information daily that we're not remembering anything. Our, our, our long-term memory is getting worse and our short-term memory is, is also simultaneously getting worse. Um, right. So that's a big problem. That you know, what, I think about, what I think about our culture, the way we eat, okay? Now I'll admit, I'm on a diet right now. As of this recording, I'm on a diet, and it's gone reasonably well. You right. know, I'm watching carbs especially, uh, cutting sugar almost 100%, probably done a 90% cut on sugar. And I'm only about a weekend, but I know that even the cut on sugar alone is going to have a dramatic impact over time. But when we look at other cultures, uh, are you familiar with, and I think you and I've talked, well, I think we've talked about, have we talked about Dan Bootner and the Blue Zones? Have you and I? I'm not sure. Okay. So, you know, Dan Bootner's deal is he got got grant money from uh, National Geographic. And went all over the world and identified areas of the world that he calls blue zones. And so a blue zone is an area that has a high density of long-lived people. And I'm talking about not just centenarians. uh, I'm talking about super centenarians. People that are living to be 108, 110, 112 years old on a regular basis. And so we're talking about Costa Rica, areas of Mexico, uh, Sardinia. And when you look at their diet, it is very much uh, what you described earlier. It's, it's fish. It's nuts. It's you know certain fruits and vegetables. And that's the other part of this whole thing about science actually being a culinary class or, or vice versa uh, I am shocked at the number of people that do not know about the variety of, 
you know, foods that are out there and, and what happens when you prepare them in different ways. Uh, and, and I am not a master chef by any means. Um, I'm lucky that I can boil water some days. But I have the understanding, and, and, and a lot of people don't. And, and that's, that's valuable. So the blue well, zones are interesting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and that, that would be more along the lines of the Mediterranean diet. Dr. Andrew yes. Wheeler is that. Um, the Mayo Clinics have a lot of good research, and they recently put out a book I read. Oh, what's it called? Um, I'll think uh, it'll hit me in a minute, but um, Dr. Mayo, he, he did, he's done really good work with dementia, um, memory patients, a uh, memory rescue. That's the name of the book. I knew it'd come. I kept talking about it. Um, but you know, there's a couple of basic things. I mean, you got to feed your circulatory system. Um, you know, in my, when I was in my chiropractic program, uh, I took six months in, into that doctor program before <laughs> COVID hit. And then I, I lost my funding because I dropped out, and had drop ratios too high. Um, and that happened. So, you know, right when COVID hit, m- recently made a career change on my part. So I guess we'll kind of dabble through my story as, as we talk. But um, yes. so, you know, in one of the classes at the end of the program it was like lifestyles for health was the class you know he said it really is easy you know it's eat your vegetables you know um try to eat organic and local you know try to try to move try to try to breathe you know get chiropractic care you know do do musculoskeletal care and and take care of yourself you know meditate and take time to yourself and and be positive he said you know these things they sound cheesy he said but you know at the end of the day, that's what's going to help your your patients live longer and ha- more happy. Um, so I think that we we've overcomplicated the subject because there's so many people saying their own way of it, trying to sell their own idea, their own diet, and all the diets are pretty much just a different form of an anti-inflammatory diet. Um, when you look at them at their root, that's really what they're promoting is 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 the reduction of the the mucus formation um, in the body. So it's really, it really is that simple. I think if we just broke it down and, and we just led by example as parents in the household and we ate our veggies and expected our kids to eat their veggies and we were strong, we didn't cave in. Um, I think, I think we, we will start seeing a change one household at a time and eventually one generation at a time. Well, you know, it's interesting because we talk about you know, we talked earlier about long work days. And, and like I said, I can, I can work a 12, 14 hour day and not really feel it. And, and I love, especially in the spring and summertime and early fall, uh, going into the office really early in the morning when nobody's there and really digging in. But I, I have found, at least right now, I'm almost getting more done in those shorter periods. Uh, but the other thing is you mentioned chiropractic. I'm a huge believer in chiropractics. I've, I've toured Palmer college of chiropractic here in Iowa, uh, twice actually, um, giving consideration to going down that path myself, uh, huge believer in that. And, and one of the things that I have found has really helped me is we are, we're a very sedentary culture. And so I have stopped sitting as much and. Now I'm sitting now as we record this, but uh, 
but one of the best investments I ever made was a sit to stand desk. And, you know, to stand for 20 minutes out of an hour, uh, it makes a difference. Mm. And, you know, uh, they're not expensive. They're not expensive. Um, no, it is little things. You know, it, it's, so it is. It, it's, it's that. And, and I can tell the days that I don't drink enough water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and of course I, I walk a lot, you know, and, and, uh, that, that's the other thing I walk out of necessity, but even people that drive, I, I ask them, why, why don't you walk? You know, it, it's too slow or, or, you know, mm-hmm. they, they think it's too inconvenient. Uh, you know, and yeah, it might add half hour to my morning, you know, but that's okay. But it's going to add years to your life and, right. and, and not only just years to your life, it's going to, you're, you're going to have more accessible neurotransmitters. Um, you know, your heart is going to be able to get more oxygen to your brain to, you know, help your neurons expand at a faster rate. You know, there's so right. much that goes into, you know, making that choice to park in the back of the parking lot instead of spending an extra five minutes sitting down trying to find a place up close. Um, well, that goes know. back to science. So I, you know, I, I'll admit, I was not the greatest science student in high school. And I don't <laughs> think I was the greatest science student in high school because I didn't, I'll admit it, I was close-minded. I didn't necessarily get the point uh, right. in some ways. But, but here's why I didn't get the point. They weren't applying it. They weren't saying, this is why this matters. And it really does matter. It all matters. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I've got a daughter that's in seventh grade. I've got a daughter that's in fifth grade. And, and they ask me all the time, well, why do I need to learn this? And sometimes it's hard to explain why, you know, a certain problem set or a certain topic's really important. Uh, but when you get to life, I, I am shocked at the things that I that I reach back on. Uh, almost every class, you know, almost anything, and and so, so that's a whole nother that's a whole nother deal. So, well, we've well, taken that, story, we've taken individual story out of education, and we've turned it into a curriculum. Yeah. So we've taken the professors and the teachers actual experiences in life. And, and some of that's because a lot of our teachers and professors, they don't have very much life experience. They, they're just sheltered. They were put through college and they got a degree and now they're teaching and that's the only world they know. And so I think that, you know, one thing the education system could do would be make it easier for other careers, professionals and careers to transition into the education department. Um, about two years ago, I, I went to a local university and try to figure out, you know, what would it take for me to, you know, be a teacher? And you know, it took four different student counselors to, to guide me to a website to tell me no one even knew, you know, I had a political science bachelor. So I was thinking like, maybe I could teach government. No, no. I mean, that's a, they don't want government <laughs> teachers. Evidently they make that right. a d- degree, not applicable, but you know, so that's one thing I think we could do on a policy level is kind of, redirect how we're educating, give more story, 
Um, when it comes to, to science, you know, it is all connected on a cellular level. Um, and it's not some random pieces of information. You know, we have minerals inside of our body. You know, when we're learning about geology, we're, you know, these teachers aren't telling these students like, see this NACL, like this is what you eat that makes things taste good. And here's what it does in biology class. So like, there's not a cross reference to subjects. We try to break subjects into these independent layers of information, but really it's interwoven from subject to, from, you know, art history to literature, to religion. You know, there's so many different um, subtopics that interweave the criteria that, that is the story that connects information. And when you understand neurology and you know how memories are formed, you understand it builds off of a point of reference. So once you have one memory circle, it's much easier to build, you know, more information based off of that one memory circle than it is to form a new memory circle. So, um, you know, if we changed our dialogue of the deliverance of information, we could, we could impact people at a much greater level, make them more interested, which whenever you talk about interest, you're talking about dopamine. You're talking about not having to dope kids up to sit in class. So you're talking about them actually wanting to do the information, wanting to do the data. Um, you know, there's there a whole other dimension of conversation whenever you talk about, you know, making school fun, um, you know, what you can do to impact the generation of that education system. Um, so that's kind of my rant for well, that. <laughs> right. No, it, it, you hit on something interesting. And that is, you know, I've I have valued for my entire life the power of personal stories. Uh, simply because that was part of and is part of my family culture. You know, grandparents telling stories, aunt and uncles and cousins telling stories. You know, I've, I've always valued that. And, and so I value it as an adult. And I feel like I've really learned over the last, really probably the last three or four years, it's really become painfully apparent to me that we as a culture stink at telling our stories, but also listening for the stories that are trying to come from people that don't know how to tell them. And that became painfully obvious to me when I served in my AmeriCorps VISTA position, working with people in poverty, that, you know, communities were trying to do things and they were like, why, aren't this, why isn't this working? Well, I would say, are you, are you asking? Are you asking people? Are you listening to people's stories? Well, no. You know, and, and one of the best things that ever probably happened to me during that time, I happened to be at our local library. And I overheard the librarian struggling with somebody at the counter, uh, not sure how to help them. And so I went out and I, and I ended up taking them back and I listened to their story for about 40 minutes and made one or two phone calls and got what they needed because I asked different questions to get the story. Mm. And, and that is, you know, we tell our kids, you know, we're going to read you a story, but we don't teach we don't teach how to tell the personal story. We teach how to write. We teach how to write a story, but we don't teach how to write or tell the personal story. You're Maybe. right. 
even the painful even the right even the painful elements people don't we, we hide we hide those elements we hide those things we don't want people to know about because Same. the other problem with the american culture is we are really not nice to people that have had things happen or have done things that are against the grain or socially not accepted. Yeah. Well, there's we, no forgiveness and our culture is purely transactional. So right. once someone steps off a cliff and they can't offer anything back, then we cut them off. And it's, it's a state of mutual usury. And, and that's where you get this unidimensional approach of not having to individualize the story. You know, you have, a, there's a patient that came in the ER, you know, recently. And I, I do, one of my jobs at the hospital is screening. Um, my other job is a uh, patient care tech. So, you know, I was screening and that's just checking people's temperature, making sure, you know, seeing if they're respiratory patients or not. And making sure, you know, each patient only has one visitor. And so I, I was screening this patient in and he was in, in a state of psychosis and, you know, he was checking in with the chart or the triage nurse. They got done with everything. He was taken to the back and, you know, I, I could hear everything going on. And I, I turned around and I asked, you know, has he had a traumatic brain injury? And no one had asked that question. And so they were about to, you know, medicate this gentleman without even really understanding what was going on. And regardless, it was still probably going to be the same medication, but just to know that it was more than likely a traumatic brain injury that was causing his psychosis and it was totally missed. Um, and it's like that level of, of storytelling is being missed in the field of science. It's like, we're not, we're not asking the right question, just as you mentioned. Um, and we need more storytellers. We need more people that can understand archetypes and, and literature class, you know, is failing our students because we're not making the motifs relevant enough. Um, we're, we're focusing on 17th century literature and it's not being applied to what's on CNN. Um, you know, so there's, there's just a disconnect of, of the, the attention to what could be if we were actually cared enough beyond just the transaction of getting this person past my my boundary you know like i want to know more to understand for my own selfish reasons but it's really for your personal pursuits you know and i and i think that's when i think about the teachers that i've had over the years I can pick out good elements of every class and things that I've learned. And I'm the kind of person that can apply the strangest things to my life, it, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that I'll, I'll consider that a personal gift. Not everybody has that, but it, you know, it, things like I, I really point to history class a lot, you, you know, it, the things that we learned in history class, one of the most important things that my high school history teacher ever said to me was, and he said it repeatedly, was history repeats itself. And for some reason that that hung on. And so as I've looked at the pandemic, and in, in the beginning, I wasn't sure how to personally respond to the pandemic, uh, other than to observe and take notes. Because yeah. what I realized was that as he said, history repeats itself. 
this is going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And when it does, our culture is forever changed. And because it's forever changed, we're going to have issues going to back, back to what we call normal. That's a whole different topic. But when the next pandemic hits, my hope is that we have developed the tools to pivot. But to develop the rest of those tools, we need to really talk through what you and I have been talking through today, which is diet, mental health, physical health. Because we have people right now that are quarantined that physically they're okay, but emotionally they're not. And sitting on Zoom and on Facebook just isn't cutting it. Yeah. Well, children's diabetes is, has gone up. I, I, I want to say it's like 50%. Um, some of about right, yeah. Yeah, some of it's being attributed to the virus and its effects on um, how it interacts with insulin and sugars. And I, I, I'm not sure exactly how, if that, how accurate that is. I think that so much more of it is, is more epi- on an epigenetic level of the fact that kids have unlimited access to the pantry now. Um, and parents are still buying the crap foods that have preservatives that last longer. Um, you know, yeah, you're right. We, we really, I think if we start focusing on the individual and, you know, there's a lot to project outside ourselves to be angry at the world and, and to, you know, try to create grassroots movements to, to, um, go against the grain of, of what we are passionately, you know, moved to fight against, um, that we are personally afflicted with. You know, there's room for that, but more than anything, you know, if we do focus on the little things and focus on just being nice more and and being interested in, in our neighbors and developing more relationships and you know being healthier, being happier, you know, when the shutdown happens, we'll have a stronger individual community. And and I think that you know very much of historical philosophy goes back and forth between individualism versus collectivism. And at the root of it is you have to move through the individual before you can move into the collective unit. And so, you know, it is vital for everyone to start picking up their slack, taking care of themselves, drinking their water, taking their vitamins, you know, being preemptive about their health. And and I think if we focus on being preemptive about that, then that's a good standard for, for us to be able to start focusing on community health and things that are beyond us. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about just clean your room and it's like, yeah, like clean your gut, you know, clean, clean your, clean your pantry. Um, you know, clean these things that you have direct access to that you have control over and you'll find yourself being able to gain more and more control over more and more in your life. Um, and I think we can heal communities, you know, if, if we really impact and, you know, we develop new networks and nodes of communication between, um, you know, farmers and, and, and gardeners and, and, you know, people that are hungry and jobless and, and welfare recipients. You know, I think there's a lot of work to be done on the ground level of, of these existing um, th- entities, these organizations that are already doing the work. I think we're close and there's enough of a, I think Howard Zinn explains it. There's enough of a democracy that's there to, to, to still make a change. And I, and I, I, I believe in that so deeply. 
that we have enough of a, of a capitalistic and, you know, socialistic system to protect people, to be preventative about their health, to be preventative about, you know, shutdowns. You know, we should localize our electrical grid. We should localize our internet. We should do a lot of things preemptively. So when the shutdown happens, we're okay. And we could be investing into that infrastructure right now. It just takes conversations like this to, to, to spark those flames to, to spread across countries and nations. Absolutely. And so that kind of, that kind of shifts me a little bit. You know, we've talked a lot about storytelling and shift, you know, of culture and of individual mind and uh, these things. But so, so I understand that you, uh, you've written a book. I have. It's been a decade in writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I've learned myself that that doesn't, that doesn't matter. That part, it, it takes what it takes. And writing a book can be, it can be intimidating, but it can be, it, it also can be very, very rewarding. And I, I think, you know, people ask me, so, well, how'd you write a book? And I hate to say it. Sometimes my response is, "I just did it. It it just took time." Uh, so, so tell us about the book. Um, I, I like how you said you just did it, and I, I love Nike's quote of "just do it" because it really is that. Like when I recently remodeled our bathrooms, I look at it; it's a big project, but it's literally one board at a time. And same with the book. You know, it started off as a series of journal entries. I just sat down and stream of consciousness, you know, from the stream of consciousness, from the back of my mind, I just wrote out, you know, what was happening in my life. I had a child my first year in college. Um, you know, I lost my scholarship due to injury. So, you know, as an athlete going through, you know, losing his identity. So, you know, there was a lot that I was kind of going through and I just felt like I wanted to help other people that were going through something similar. I wanted to tell my side of the story. And that's kind of where it started. Um, and over the past decade, you know, that led into the psychosis and I kind of have a big chapter about, you know, what was happening in my mind and it's kind of a, the thrilling part of the, of the book. Um, and it kind of ends with where I'm at and, you know, grow my community was, has been a big part of my journey up to this point, which is really an idea about self-sustainability. Um, you know, investing into the self, it's really kind of been my, the philosophy for what I've done with my life up to this point from my media company, trying to do positive productions to my, you know, current career in, in the healthcare field. Um, you know, just trying to do good individually, which will then move into the collective and then beyond that economic and, and national international. Um, but the book kind of just follows the story of me going through my 20s. And I think it's important to tell that story. Um, and my, my conclusion is, is just to keep going. I mean, I'm 28 right now. I, I still have ideas about where I could take my career, but I'm still enrolled in college. I'm still taking classes and I'm, you know, I'm still making those journal entries in my own life and knocking out those, those micro goals to set myself up to where I have all my prereqs in case I want to get my MD or, you know, I have, I have my prereqs in case I want to go get my PhD in psychology, you know? I, and so the point of it is, 
you have to learn to, to, to be fluid in your life and not live in the past. You know, you have 30% of your, of your plate filled with the past, 30% with the present and 30% with the future, you know, similar to how you should fill your plate on your foods, you have 30% carbs, 30% vegetables, 30% meats, you know, however, like to have that type of balance in your life, um, is, is really going to help you thrive because it's going to help you not repeat the past because you're, you're balancing, you know, you're remembering, you know, the mistakes that you made. You're, you're able to focus on the now and the present to be able to fulfill the goals that you've set in the future. Um, and, you know, I think that's just the whole purpose of producing art is just moving on and, and making a timestamp of the here and now. And this is a reflection of where I'm at. I think everyone should produce art. I think everyone should tell their story, uh, however they tell it. Some people tell their story interpersonally. Um, some people have a blog. Some people, which I've recently launched a blog. Um, you know, so, so there's different ways that people have means of communication. And um, I think it's important for more people to communicate and develop the skills of communication and develop forms to communicate. Um, whether it's through dance or it's through music or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, find an art form, find an interest, whether it's you're an electrical engineer and that's your art form and you made something beautiful with it. Um, you can make anything an art form. And I think like your life is an art form and you form it. And that's kind of what my story is, is me kind of forming my future and not getting upset about when something happens, like dealing with it and working with it, being patient and learning to, to fight your demons that, that are holding you back. Um, Absolutely. You know, and, and I, when I, when I look at, you know, the work that we do at Bollinger Solutions, you know, we work with nonprofits and small businesses and people that want to start things. That's what we pride ourselves on is helping people start things uh, or taking an organization that really needs to go through a potentially difficult transition and do it. And, 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 and I think you deal with the same sort of stuff with media, you know, you're, you're great at, you're great at, at production, audio and video. And, and, and that's where you're, you know, th those, those are huge art forms, but you know, all these things, you you mentioned having courses in, science if you wanted to go to med school or you know you've got the prereqs or some of the prereqs to go to law school and and i've and i'm in the same boat you know that's what that's what we call lifelong learning and it doesn't people say well, why would you learn that uh well uh, my my question is why not right why not learn it you know why not gain every little bit that that you can gain so now this has been this has been great. I think you know, you and I could go on for for days and days and days, and uh, these conversations they, they need to continue. And and uh, as a culture, I hope that out of all the the tragedy and and loss and uh, everything else that has the negatives that have come of this pandemic over the past, you know, year, I hope that the positives outweigh the negatives, but I think to see those positive, it's going to take us some time and, and they're going to come. 
through through stories and through you know through things like this. Mm-hmm. So very much appreciated. So how can how can people learn more about you? How can they uh, you know get in touch if 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 uh, you know that sort of thing? So I like I said I recently launched a blog on garrett.livinggood.wordpress.com. Uh, it's a WordPress law blog. I've been wanting to someone for a while. I love writing um, uh, poetry from that to just kind of free thought, philosophical quandaries, um, anything in that field. That's one place you can follow, uh, you know, Facebook right now, unless I get canceled. Um, that's just Garrett Living Good. I have an artist page you can follow. Um, Instagram, Garrett Living Good. I do have some grow, have a Grow My Community Facebook page and Instagram page. Um, I think my Twitter is, uh, you can find me at Garrett Living Good. Garrett Living Good, I think, aren't you? Yeah, I I think I've got a a short name on Twitter. Um, But anywho, Twitter's not important. (laughs) And I love, I love too, you've done, I don't know if you've done one lately, but you you did some Facebook lives here a while back that I thought were phenomenal. Thank Um, you. Where you walked through some different issues and. And you really hit, there was one, and I can't remember what the full topic was, but you really, you really dug deep on something and it, and it really impressed me, uh, you know, and, and so, and, and I used to really question the value of people sitting live on Facebook, but I'll tell you what, I really think that during this pandemic, people are doing it more. And the quality and the ideas that are coming out are wonderful. We've mm-hmm. got uh, we've got a gal that that owns a uh, her and her husband own a True Value uh, franchise, and then she she put a coffee shop in the one end of the store, and she will maybe not every day, but pretty close. She'll go live and she'll do something food related, and it's educational you're learning something i don't know if she's intending to teach but she is but it's also just funny enough that you can't help but watch the thing and you know i just stuff like that is it's it it is healthy Mm -hmm. because it's it's good for you know it's good for her and it's good for honestly it's a good business decision uh as well because it's uh you know she might test something that she'll use at the coffee shop or whatever you know it's Lots well, technology, it, it can be a medicine and it can be a drug, just as any, anything that is in our lives can be one or the other. Um, and, and all that boils back into how we balance it. So, you know, if you're using media to, to transpire education and, and actual happiness and, and bl- bliss you know at moments you know as long as you're not 100% bliss or 100% education you don't take time to smile every now and then you know I mean it's it it can be a tool or it can be a weapon and that's just how you wield it so you know I think that what you're doing and and what I'm trying to do down here in Georgia in terms of just inspiring people to communicate to share their story to produce art to support local efforts um, I think that we can 
re- we can redirect the flow of the money in our communities. Instead of moving outside, it could be moving intrinsically and enriching our neighbors rather than enriching the few billion trillionaires that are residing outside of our, our and actually helping our communities. So, you know, the actual taxpayers can be investing into other taxpayers, basically. So, you know, I think a lot of it goes into, you know, new directories online outside of how Google functions. That's going to entail, you know, new communication efforts and, and, and work with the local newspaper and local media establishments that are already there. Um, you know, people like you getting on, starting a podcast and typing in key keywords and tags and breaking Google's algorithm by, by the millions, just like we're breaking the stock market with the millions of single dollar donations. Um, you know, similar to how Bernie Sanders kind of really took over with with the dollar donations on his part. Um, you know, people really can like there's limitations to how much we can break through the system, but we can still make a dent. And that's Absolutely. making history. Absolutely. And, and you know, I. I've always when I got into nonprofits, uh, you know, basically 20 years ago. Uh, one of the one of the center points of of the teaching both in the classroom and and some of the practical stuff that I was seeing was when you raise money you go for the big donors mm-hmm. and somehow that didn't feel right like I think that's where my personal ethics kicked in and not that that's not ethical but I said there's there's more there's something else and and so I've always held this belief in smaller donors 10, 25, 50, $100 donors. And, you know, we're, we're in the midst right now in Creston of a massive renovation of a historic building in Uptown for an art center. And in December, we finished raising $95,000 with a majority of that coming from 25 to $500 donations. Wow. And it absolutely proved, to me, it proved that people do. And, and we had some $10 donations. And, and I, I told people, I said, hey, you're not going to be matched, but you're going to be a part of it. And that was the goal, is you're going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, meant, that meant something. Well, that's a part of the story. It is. It's a huge part of a story. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other interesting thing was when when we started the project, one of the first things that I did was I dug into the story of the building, into the history of what was there. But then I dug deeper into the history of the businesses that were there. So I kind of got the timeline and then I dug into, you know, for example, it was a bakery in the 60s, 70s and until about the mid 80s. And so then I started talking to people that were high school kids in the seventies, you know, and, and oh. what, did they, what did they go to the bakery for and when and how, and, you know, uh, did they live up the street and sneak down there for ice cream? Well, some of them did, <laughs> uh, you know, but that was people like telling that those stories. And so we need to translate that into personal stories. So th- this has been great. Garrett. Well, we can, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. The Dr. J Show Knowledge